Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, November the 23rd, 2023, Thanksgiving Day. Um, on the West Coast uh, of the United States and generally, indeed, in the United States. The show's been off the air a few days. I've been overseas in New Zealand. And while I've been away, of course, all the news has been about open AI and uh, the AI technological revolution that is about, according to many people in Silicon Valley, about to transform the world. Everything, of course, is technology. Historically, man has always been in the business and women of transforming the world according to technology. My guest today um, knows that all too well. Christopher DeHamel is one of the world's leading authorities on medieval manuscripts, uh, on illuminated manuscripts. Many of you will be familiar with his best-selling book, Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, 12 Journeys into the Medieval World. It came out back in 2019. It was a huge hit. Obscure subject, but very, very relevant and very intriguing and romantic for many readers. And he has a brand new book out, The Manuscripts Club, the people behind a thousand years of medieval manuscripts. Uh, Christopher de Hamel is, um, uh, he spent a lot of his life at Sotheby's. He's also uh, a fellow out of Cambridge, a very distinguished Cambridge College. And he's joining us from London today. Uh, Christopher, do you think of manuscripts um as technology i mean it's obviously not ai or the internet or even the printed book but are they a manifestation of a certain kind of technology well all writing is technology if you like um writing literacy was invented around two or three thousand bc um and until about uh, um well, until the mid-15th century, all books, all written communication, all literature, all knowledge was transmitted by manuscripts, was, was copied out by hand, uh, copied one, one from another from another in a whole line of transmission, and, 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 and all books were handmade. Um, if something is handwriting, is that technology? Well, it is sort of. It's something that animals can't do. It is, it, it is writing. It is literacy. In the mid-15th century, in Europe, they invented printing with movable type. There have been various forms of printing in the Far East before that, not known in Europe. But in, in, in Europe, in the 15th century, technology, new technology, changed everything. And as with our technology, um, it didn't really mark the end of manuscripts. They went on making them by hand for about 100 years. But gradually, printing took over um, and still does. But... Um, but they are they are books they are they are um, uh, they produce them as cleverly and as quickly as they could but they are handmade totally handmade yeah they're wonderfully rich artifacts of the past as you know the gutenberg press undermined them although they didn't completely destroy them for our listeners and viewers christopher tell us what an illuminated manuscript uh, was um well, yeah, um, we're talking about a period of about 1500 years of human history and all over Europe or all over all over the Western world. Um, and so um, generalizing, uh, 
we have to be slightly careful. The word manuscript literally means written by hand, manu scriptum in Latin, a handwritten book. And in the Middle Ages, they wouldn't have thought of it as being particularly handmade. There was no other way of doing it. All books were handmade. So they'd have thought of them as books. The word manuscript, of course, is a post-medieval term. Illuminated strictly means it contains gold or silver and it catches the light. It sparkles. And gold is used a great deal in medieval manuscripts, but not all manuscripts contain gold. So even some of the famous ones, the Book of Kells, for example, one of the greatest of all manuscripts, doesn't actually contain gold and so strictly is not an illuminated manuscript. But I think loosely we would talk about illumination as those pages filled with colour and decoration and animals and monkeys and flowers and trumpets and borders and, um, and all the glorious colour of the Middle Ages, which is used in books. We think, of course, of Umberto Eco's world, yes. of, mm. of monks, of scholastic monks slaving yes. over these yep. um, works of art. Is that the correct way of thinking of it, Christopher? Were these very well, much located well, um, there is, in, there is, in religious institutions? Until about the year 1000, that's to say the first thousand years of, 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 of Christianity, all nearly all books were made either by monks or by religious institutions. Um, uh, Christianity was really the only form of Latin literacy um, in, in, um, in post-classical Europe, um, and nearly everything was made by monks. So that sort of is true. Um, by about mid-11th century, we begin to get evidence of professional, secular, professional scribes. And these are really taking over by the mid-12th century. This also corresponds with the rise of the universities and of mercantile uh, industries across Europe. And by about 1200, probably most books are not being made by monks. So the famous late medieval manuscripts, the great books of ours of the Duke de Berry and others, would have been made by professional craftsmen. They were people who were paid paid scribes, paid illuminators. And to buy one, you'd have gone to a bookshop. And it is um, you evoke uh, Umberto Eco, he is, which is one of the most evocative and fascinating accounts of the medieval mind. But um, that is really set in the 13th century. And by that date, monks probably would not have been making books. He slightly stretched the evidence there. Um, and probably by that date, monks of his fictional monastery would have gone to somewhere like Bologna or Paris um, uh, and, and, and would actually have would have bought books or would have had them professionally made. So monks in the early period, later period, they're professional. Christopher, you mentioned the classical period, of course, yes. classical Greece and Rome. Was it, in a sense, was the, 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 the illuminated manuscript, was it an advance on what the Greeks and the Romans did with text or did they have an equivalent medium? Um, they had an equivalent, and certainly people were using and making manuscripts right through classical antiquity. And of course, the texts we have of the great classical texts, uh, Homer, I mean, all the Greek texts, all, you know, all the Latin classical texts, survived to us only through the medium of manuscripts. I mean, they survived because, a, you know, a copy was made and a copy of a copy and one was, you know, one survived and was, you know, and was used and, and, and transcribed. So there is an un unbroken line of tradition from classical times uh, right up to now of books. Not every text survived. Some did not 
get copied, or some got partially copied, like bits of Livy. But um, there certainly were Roman books. The big, the big difference is that before about the year naught, most books were scrolls, um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls are a famous example. Um, they're in scroll form. And somewhere in the first century, they begin to invent books, books with pages that turn what we would call a codex. And these were particularly used for texts you'd want to consult, like Christian Bibles and the law. So we would still talk about a law codex, the law code. Um, that is really because it goes right back to, to, to a book in codex form. And the great advantage of that is you can use both sides of the page um, and you can flip through it. You can put a marker in it and you can you can read a passage. You can you can come back to it. Whereas a scroll, you have to do from one end to the other. So it's slower to do. Um, but that's the that is probably the fundamental difference between a classical manuscript and a modern one. Um, many classical books were made on papyrus. That is the um, uh, uh, it's rather like paper, but made from a reed uh, grown principally in Egypt um, and hammered hammered in, into a sort of uh, uh, kind of matting, which is very easy to write on. Most of our medieval books were written on animal skin, parchment or vellum, and then eventually on paper. But um, a book of, say, 1000 AD looks like a modern book. Same shape, same size, same format, same way of using it, same 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 form of index we will read it from the same end it hasn't changed much in a thousand years except that they're now printed we are speaking with christopher de hamel the author of the manuscripts club uh, christopher you suggested it hasn't changed much over a thousand years what about the, the cultural equivalence your your book mostly focuses on on europe uh, of course medieval europe was very dependent and in many ways um borrowing, so to speak, its technology, its ideas, its science from other worlds, the Muslim world or the Chinese world. Mm -hmm. Did these other equivalent cultures, civilizations have uh, manuscripts of their own or, 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 um, or, or technology that led to equivalent kinds of, uh, of texts, of, of yeah. early books? Uh, the answer is yes, of course. The Chinese, Koreans and Japanese had printing um, by really quite sophisticated printing by the 10th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, um, partly printed in, um, in xylographic form, that's to say when the whole design is cut in a single block, but also printing with movable type. Um, and some of this worked its way right through the Middle East. There is no real evidence that printing as invented or uh, independently reinvented in Europe in the 15th century owes anything to the Far East. As far as we know, there's no connection. The connection with Oriental um, or <laughs> Middle Eastern manuscripts, I should say I'm speaking from London, so our uh, perspective of what is the Middle East is the Middle East from here to you in California. Perhaps that's the, the, the you know, even further west. But um, but printing from... from um, um, the Levant, the Arabic countries right through to India, sorry, uh, manuscripts from that period, are mostly later than European ones. The great period um, of Islamic books um, and of Mughal manuscripts in India is the 16th and 17th century. And people have often said, you know, do the designs and the practice that we were doing in Europe come from the Middle East? It's really the other way around. Uh, we were doing it first so that there are wonderful illuminated manuscripts being made in Europe in the 6th, 7th and 8th centuries when almost nothing 
was being done done there. Um, and of course, early Qurans are not illustrated and not illuminated. Um, and they don't, you don't really get Arabic and Persian illuminated manuscripts before the 12th and 13th centuries, whereas it comes earlier. You would have thought that the Crusades in the 12th century, when Europeans went over to the Middle East, they would have picked up uh, manuscripts, and they must have done. Um, but it's very, very difficult to prove. Um, people have always looked for connections and they're, they are, they're very, very hard to find. I think generally you would say they're independent traditions and we do not owe much to the Middle East or the other way around. So the way in which uh, the Muslim world kept alive, so to speak, mm. the, the the classical texts, yeah. Aristotle in particular. Ah, ah, of course, was, oh, those, yes, of course. Was in text rather than in pictorial. Uh, in manuscript, yes, 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 of course. Um, the Arabs um, translated Aristotle very early on. So a lot of medicine, uh, medicine and science came from, um, from classical Greece and of course spread out both we tend to think of Greece as being in Europe, which, which it is. But of course, it's 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 circle of influence went both ways. Um, and in the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, very good medicine was being practiced in places like Baghdad. And they were translating classical, classical Greek uh, into Arabic. And then in the 12th century, or 11th and 12th centuries, those Arabic texts come to Europe, uh, mainly uh, through Spain, North Africa and Spain, where the Arabs were were moving along and then get translated into Latin, so not in, back into Greek, but into Latin. So those texts, some texts, some classical texts, survived through a kind of double transmission from the Far East, but not in terms of illumination, not in terms of art. Those are texts. Um, and you're right, they do come through. through, through so we through had Africa. two kinds of books, so to speak, um, yes. illuminated manuscripts and straightforward texts. Um, they yeah, both had enormous it's, quite, it's not quite as simple, but yes, yes, okay, yeah. Um, well, to, to simplify it or maybe vulgarize it. That's, right, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah, so you have these, these two kinds of objects. Um, they were owned, of course, by often the church or by powerful, wealthy individuals. Yes, yes. What happened to them? Were they on public display? I want to get to your book after the break, The Manuscripts Club. Okay, that's fine, yeah. How, how were these objects kept were they shown off were they equivalent of were there equivalents of museums or public spaces or libraries no. where people had access to these documents in the early period that's to say up to about 1100 most great libraries were in monasteries or religious institutions they would have been kept books would have been kept in probably in wooden chests in the cloisters, a really big library, a really comprehensive library of all the texts they would have wanted, could have been up to two or 300 volumes. That's all, that's fewer, fewer books than most of us own at home now. So libraries were really quite small and they would have been kept out of sight, wrapped up in chests, in monasteries. Monks themselves would have had access to them. Uh, if anyone wanted to consult them, there's perfectly good evidence that people outside people were allowed in very often to consult manuscripts but generally speaking they would have been kept out of sight by the end of the middle ages you begin to get those first great private collections so the the royal dukes of france um, france and england and burgundy and and those princes of the italian renaissance like the 
uh, the Schwarzes and the Medici and the Este family and so on. Uh, they too had manuscripts which were sort of public, sort of publicly available, but generally they were privately owned books. And I think that idea of a public library, a library to which everybody has access, doesn't really come into the 16th or 17th century. The Vatican Library was opened in the uh, um, uh, third quarter of the 15th century. And to an extent, people were allowed in, but it's not a it's not they're not really public these are books for they're private items they're things for holding in your hand they're things for meditating on for reading slowly for sitting in the sunlight for cradling it on on you on your lap and looking and admiring and reading and annotating and copying and 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 enjoying but they're very personal and very domestic and very small scale compared with um the kind of media we deal with now so these were used or displayed or manifested very differently from the, the cathedrals of the time which were public yes. spaces so the public yes. and the private coexisted one in the form of these illuminated manuscripts the other in terms of great buildings i expect if you'd been to a cathedral if you, as a member of the public, went into one of those great Gothic cathedrals in the 13th century, you probably would have seen a few manuscripts. There would have been um, church services have always required books from the very beginning. So there would have been some missals, there would have been choir books up in the choir, they would have had some illumination in them. Um, and for most people in the Middle Ages, their only encounter with books would probably have been through the church. They would have, if they're in the congregation, they would have seen up the other end that the priests were holding and using books. And as you turn the page of a book of course there's gold on it or often gold and the gold sparkles and glitters in the um in the candlelight and 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 the illumination often looks very very like stained glass windows and sometimes they must have been the same artist doing the same thing and 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 they would have been part of the kind of furnishings of a great cathedral but Books are very small they're very difficult even now books are difficult to display museums do have them, but they're they're small and intimate and personal and private and belong to people and used by people. They're not great. Whereas a cathedral is a is a public monument, is something you stand in and look up and you're awe-inspired. A manuscript is something very private, very personal, and you hold it in your hands and you read it and it talks to you and it's marvelous. Is there then a, a, a spiritual element to illuminated manuscripts in the sense you didn't even really need to be literate to appreciate them? Uh, it depends on the book. Um, we all know how you could get inspired by, uh, get a kind of spiritual uplift from something that you can't read. I actually, personally, I love uh, Islamic manuscripts. I think they're absolutely beautiful. I can't read a word of them, but the delicacy of them is 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 extraordinary. Um, I think until about, as I say, to about 1100, most people who could read and write were probably priests, priests or monks, people trained by the church. By the 12th century, you begin to get private literacy. By the 15th century, probably the majority of people could read up to a point. Uh, merchants would, uh, um, you know, there were professions, lawyers, lawyers, doctors, uh, shopkeepers and so on, who, who were able to read and keep their books and so on. But how well they could read, even now, there are layers of literacy. And you can enjoy a book. Can enjoy a book without reading it. Um, I get a lot of pleasure out of books I can't read. I've got plenty of books upstairs I will never read, and I'm delighted to have them. So, but, um, but yes, I think I think you do need 
I mean, some literacy is assumed um, to earn a book. I wonder whether the reason why the uh, the Arab uh, the Arab civilization didn't have illuminated manuscripts was in the religious sense that the representation was uh, of perhaps in some traditions a form of heresy. Well, well, they have Qurans, of course. I mean, the Quran, uh, you know, Qurans pictorial representation. Yeah, 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 representation of people, and indeed, through certain periods. Um, in Greek manuscripts, um, there was a period when, when, when uh, uh, people, uh, figural uh, representation was not allowed in manuscripts. What's called the uh, the period of, um, uh, um, uh, you know, of, of, of you know, a banning of of, uh, of icons, but um, but that was not generally the case in the West. We've always had illustration. Even pictures of God and Jesus appear in manuscripts and uh, people have no concern about that. Even in the most pious periods of the Middle Ages, our books were often illustrated. We are speaking with Christopher de Hamel, the author of The Manuscripts Club. In After the break, I want to talk more specifically about the book. I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics for helping us bring this very high quality programming. Great writers like Christopher de Hamel are going to run a short feature on liberties. And then we'll be back with Christopher de Hamel, author of the Manuscripts Club, to talk specifically about the people behind a thousand years of medieval manuscripts. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Christopher de Hamel, the author of The Manuscripts Club. Uh, Christopher, your first big hit was Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts. Now, your new book could be Meetings with Remarkable uh, Men and Women who, uh, who were the members of the same club. Tell me about some of these individuals. Why did you choose to write this particular book? Well, I think I should say at the beginning, I've invented the term club. There is no such club. There is no, there isn't a manuscripts club. But what I sort of imagined is I I love manuscripts. I have to say I'm passionate. I spent my whole life working on them. I think they're the most extraordinarily interesting, beautiful, fascinating, uh, hypnotic, uh, intriguing things. I want to know everything about them. I want to know where they've been and how they were made and who earned them and what they were for and how they were kept and shelved and used and read and bound and, you know, and, 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 and what they were worth and, and, and and how they've survived or haven't copied and so on. I want to know all, all about manuscripts. And then the more you look into the history of anything, you find out what, you realize what a lot of other people throughout history are equally obsessed and, and as, as fascinated as you are in any subject. And we all know what it's like now to go to a, a conference 
uh, or a meeting of, on, on, on any subject. It could be railway engines or, or butterflies or football or anything you're interested in. And, and suddenly you're all there because you share a passion in common. You've all got that, you know, the one thing. You all understand each other. And the, the old man and the schoolboy and, and, and the clergyman and, and, and the engineer and the, the communist or the whoever can sit down at the breakfast table and they meet as absolute equals, uh, sharing an enthusiasm with the subject. So the idea was somehow to see whether we could take this passion, this shared interest, right back through history and imagine that instead of the club being international and worldwide now, what would happen if we could take it back for a thousand years and go and see some of these people? Um, and I'm not writing fiction. I mean, this is this is a history book. But 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 the idea is that you sort of imagine going and talking to people who, like me, have spent their lives with manuscripts. What would I ask them? You know, how did they get involved? What were they doing? What were they after? How did they see it? What did they think was going to happen? Wouldn't they be pleased to know what has survived and what hasn't survived? Um, why were they doing it? What inspired them? And, and of course, many of them are um, in some way collectors, but they're also people who made manuscripts, used them, uh, studied them, published them, edited them, forged them, sold them, um, uh, you know, gathered them, used them, uh, used their texts, uh, edited them, um, and exhibited them, all sorts of purposes for having and enjoying manuscripts, and trying to imagine all the people through history caught up in this passion. Um, Oh, I'd love to meet them, and I'd love to talk to them, and 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 I haven't invented conversations, but in most cases, I've been to the places where they lived, and been to the monasteries, or the the, the museums, or the synagogues, or wherever they lived, um, and tried. And I've looked at many, many, many books they would have owned and used and shared and touched the pages of, and you get that real sense of intimacy with people from long, long ago by looking at their books. And books do survive. An extraordinarily large number of books survive from the Middle Ages. And um, to be able to hold them and touch them and smell them and turn their pages and read them, you find yourself really very, very close to the people who did exactly the same hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, and, um, and I love it. Christopher, you noted there wasn't a real club. You've invented yeah. it. You haven't invented the people in the club. Mm. Uh, you know probably more about this imaginary club than anyone else. What, what will its members, do you think, think about the printing press? Would they see it as inevitable, as avoidable? Would they look um, back as the, um, the technology that destroyed everything that they loved? Um, we can't generalize absolutely about anything, but... Um, the, the book trade existed in a big way. It was a well-established book trade in Europe from the 13th, 13th century onwards. Um, and, and certainly by the 14th and 15th century, when printing came in, there was a whole network across Europe um, of booksellers, um, uh, you know, authors, publishing books. Um, uh, you know, you could, you could order a book from a scribe. He would write it out by hand or you get a group of people to write it out, uh, you know, a a bookseller would be agent involved. There were there were bookbinders. There were people selling and distributing books and traveling across Europe, selling books. And books were being sold sold around round fairs. The Frankfurt Book Fair goes back to the uh, before the invention of printing. I mean, so that that whole uh, a complex network of book production already existed before printing. 
What printing did initially was to speed up the process of writing books. And, and in general, many scribes welcomed printing. They loved it. And where we know the careers of many of the early printers, many of them had themselves been scribes. So suddenly they could use technology to, to, to produce more cheaply and faster, and as they felt more accurately, uh, what they'd always been doing. And the, the feeling about copying a book by hand is every time you copy it out, you will make mistakes. Everybody does. We all do. You copy something out, your eye jumps, and your, your attention wanders. You get a few words wrong, or you find that the person, one you're copying it from, has got a few words wrong, and you try and correct them, and you may have correct them wrongly. And these variations come in. The thing about printing is that every copy, in theory, was identical, of course. Wasn't always, but in theory it was. So it was a way of reproducing books quickly, cheaply, and more accurately. And many of those scribes loved it. And it just simply, they took over a book trade which was already in existence. Having said that, there were, of course, some conservative people who didn't like it. Um, one of the characters in my book um, is Vespasiano de Bastici, who was a bookseller in 15th century Florence, and he dealt in manuscripts. He felt the printing was vulgar. He was a cartier liar, a stationer. Yes, exactly, a, station, a stationer, a bookseller. Book he, he was in the trade. He didn't like printing, and he resented it. And when printing finally came to Florence, he packed up business and gave up. Um, on the other hand, I also have a chapter on a 16th century uh, illuminator uh, in, um, in Flanders called Simon Benning, who wasn't even born until after the invention of printing. And he is still making books by hand way into the 16th century. So it didn't happen immediately. And the, the two ran in parallel. And indeed, even now, book production by hand is not completely over. There are still contemporary scribes and illuminators and people making making books for the fascination of it or as works of art or for particular occasions like, you know, certificates and, 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 and you know, you know university degrees and all sorts of other uh, documentation still being done by hand. So printing hasn't completely taken over, but um, and it happened slowly. But I think generally, I think it was rather welcomed. I think they rather liked it. I don't suppose Bisticci would be very keen on uh, the internet either, would he? Do you know, I absolutely don't know. What an interest. I mean, that, that is exactly the kind of question I would love to ask these people. Maybe think, your next book. What, I what think they would be amazed that such things existed. I think they would also be amazed that the books they made and used and handled and sold and collected and possessed and read and copied still survive. And many, many of them do. And those great princes of the Renaissance built themselves great castles of stone, and they would have thought those indestructible. But the fragile little books do survive. Books have a way of surviving. And I think that would have that would have astonished them. Yeah, and of course, books have even survived. The internet doesn't seem as if the medium is uh, being certainly affected in the same way as the movie or the music industry. You noted... Not as much as we thought it was going to. I think in the 19, 1980s, people all said that's the end of books. The medium is so old, I guess. Books are doing rather well at the moment. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it's sort of ingrained into our civilization. Yeah. You mentioned synagogues, of course. Yes. Manuscripts are mostly associated with, with Christianity. One yes. of the... The characters in your club, who I was particularly intrigued with, is David Oppenheim, the uh, yes, 17th century, late 17th century chief rabbi of Prague. How did the Jews use uh, manuscripts in the same way as Christians? Exactly the same way as we do. I mean, the 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 um, uh, uh, and 
I mean, you can tell by the fact that I'm called Christopher that I'm not Jewish, but I'm totally, I'm, I'm fascinated by, 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 by Judaism or the Jewish book production that runs all the way through. And in a sort of metaphorical way, it's almost like a kind of magic mirror culture. Um, they are producing, and, and also even the fact that the writing runs the other way, so it's almost like a reflection. Um, there were Jewish communities across most of Europe moving around at different periods for all sorts of obvious reasons, um, but producing books in Hebrew for their own use, producing and illustrating them very often in the same styles, using the same kind of parchment, same kind of bindings, completely different language. So it's this kind of um, parallel universe running through. Their books are much rarer because, first of all, there weren't so many of them, and um, and they were subject to 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 pogroms and, and 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 book destruction in a way that Christian books weren't. And the Jews didn't really have big libraries in the way that cathedrals and monasteries and eventually universities did. They were generally kept kept at home. And the person I'm talking about is, um, um, as you rightly say, a rabbi of the late 17th and early 18th century, who was worried that Jewish books were disappearing, were vanishing, were, were being lost. And he gathered this extraordinary collection in Prague and then used it, really, really used the texts. And he's looking for rabbinical opinions. He's, he's looking for authority. He's looking for transmitted opinion. And he wants he wants the text. He's more interested in text than he is in books. Um, and he puts these together. He prints some of them, and eventually, by an immensely complicated route, his collection ended up in the Bodleian Library in Oxford uh, in the nineteenth century. Which for me is very convenient because Oxford's only an hour away from here on the train, so I've been to look at them. Yeah, and I think Prague is is an obvious centre for this sort of thing. Like any good club, Christopher, not all its members were very keen on one another. You talk about two men, Antonio Panizzi oh, and yes. Frederick Madden, who were members of the same club, but didn't do a lot of talking and were actually rather hostile. Was there a lot of rivalries? Is, is, is the rivalry of these two men, does that speak of the... the I think, the I think generally, generally speaking, bookish people are rather nice and generally bookish people all get on reasonably well with each other. I think I think as an overall thing. Um, the situation in the British Museum, which is the, what you're referring to, was, was there was a kind of famous rivalry and I think quite a quite considerable hostility between um, the man I'm writing about, uh, Sir Frederick Madden, who was keeper of manuscripts, and Antonio Panizzi, who was the keeper of printed books and eventually the equivalent of director of the whole institution. And um, that difference of outlook was that Madden believed that manuscripts were represented what you had in manuscript, the early material, the unique material is, is on which the greatness of a great public collection depends on what you've got that's really important and early. Panizzi took them, would have, Panizzi would have loved the internet. Panizzi believed that universal knowledge was what really mattered, public access, public printed books from all over the world. And he created the British Museum Library now, now of course the British Library, into the world premiere collection, uh, reference collection. He was not so concerned with books as, as kind of museum artifacts, but much more books, books, books for use. Um, and he and Madden famously fell out with each other spectacularly and never really made it up. And yet they were working in the same institution and ultimately doing doing the same thing. But Madden is the man, Madden's, Madden's my man, he's the manuscript man. 
Well, like any good club, there are bound to be disputes. Oh, and uh, and, and, good and in monasteries, people fell out with each other. What was, yeah, called, well, what what was called odium monasticum, you know. Every, not everybody likes everybody, but generally. Bookish generally, people like Bookish people. people and and, and, and in any good club, Christopher, mm. particularly a, a, a club imagined by a, a British gentleman like you, there are unusual characters, eccentrics. Perhaps the most remarkable figure in your club is somebody called Bella Costa Green. Tell us about this woman who, who's remarkable in, in two ways. Um, the last chapter, I end up, although she's not, though she, uh, she died in 1950, um, and my man of chapter 11 died in 1962, but um, Bella Costa Green was the librarian of Pierpont Morgan, Pierpont Morgan, actually father and son, uh, Pierpont Morgan, the richest man in America, the great banker in New York. Um, and she was passionate about really about manuscripts, mainly manuscripts, but also early printed books. And she was really his assistant, uh, librarian, um, advisor, the energetic, the, the genius, the energy behind the, the, the creation of not only the finest library of rare books in North America, even now, the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York, quite extraordinary collection. But also she kind of inspired that whole generation of great American collectors who looked to people like Pierpont Morgan and saw that libraries were part of civilization, what a gentleman does. So Huntington in California, Folger in, 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 um, in Washington, and so on. These um, uh, uh, Henry Walters in Baltimore, they too got inspired to buy manuscripts, put together extraordinary collections. Um, and where you refer to her as, well, there were various things about her that were remarkable. Uh, one is that she was uh, immensely energetic and she was a woman and in a world where there aren't so many women and she traveling around the bookshops and 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 libraries of Europe was treated as a, a extraordinary figure that America could produce someone like that she gave her name as Belle da Costa Green she explained that the da Costa was from her Portuguese ancestry and um, she was of dark complexion, um, which is explained as Portuguese, and it was discovered only in the late 1990s, not by me, that the da Costa and the Portuguese bit were completely untrue. She was of, of, of uh, African-American descent. Um, and, um, and that itself has, its, has now become a really interesting subject, that here was this woman, uh, uh, you know, um, in the time of segregation, uh, living in the household of Pierpont Morgan, uh, inhabiting his world with the, the glitterati of New York, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the Morgans and all that great banking world. And she came from a background which wasn't quite what she pretended. And that itself is, is interesting. And she never, never let up. Um, and next year, 2024, will be the 100th anniversary of the Pierpont Morgan becoming a public institution um, with Belle de Costa Green as their first director. And there will be a great exhibition in New York, which I'm sure will talk a great deal, probably more than I have, um, about this question of her, her ethnic background, um, which is fascinating. Yeah, I could see uh, a wonderful movie about Belle Costa Green. Oh, I could do movies. What I'd like, I'd like to write an opera about my man, Jean-Joseph Reeve in the 18th century. I think he'd make a great opera. 
Well, let's end on that. Tell us about him and why he would make a, a great opera. One of, another one of your great club members, Chris. He's another one of my club members. He was a priest. He was, you say, I just said everybody was nice. He fell out with everybody. He quarreled with them all. He's a marvellous connoisseur. He has every opportunity in the world to see and use and, and, and build collections of manuscripts. And he, he advised one of the great private collections of 18th century France. But it all goes wrong and he fall, he quit it all collapses and he's got a kind of doomed character he, he undertakes books and he never finishes them he uh, not unique to him um you know he, he he promises things and he never delivers and i suspect he enriched his own collection probably by a little bit of sleight of hand too i think he was i don't think he was a criminal but he was he represents that last period of of priests of religious people moving into the book trade and he's utterly bewitching and he really he creates connoisseurship. He's the one who looks at, considers manuscripts as works of art and realizes that these are the works of the great medieval painters um, and he changes everything. And why the opera? Is there an operatic quality to this? Oh, I don't know. I just think the whole idea of this doomed man, wherever he goes, everything everything is, a, he, he, he's larger than life. Everything goes wrong. I would have him as the great tragic figure, uh, you know, dying when he then gets caught up in the french revolution he gets all on the wrong side it all he's, he's the wretch, poor wretched man whatever he does he puts his foot in it i think he'd make maybe he'd make a novel but um but but anyway that's not what i've written <laughs>